Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Jazz Times. Pianist, singer, songwriter, author, Ben Sidron is all of these things and more. He's played with or produced artists as diverse as Mose Allison, Diana Ross, Boss Skaggs, John Hendricks, and Richie Cole, and for years hosted the Peabody Award-winning NPR series, Jazz and Live. Ben holds a Ph.D. in American Studies, but in his own words, has studiously avoided the academic life, preferring instead to spend his time performing, producing, and writing. Today is the first half of my conversation with Ben about his long career and his book, There Was a Fire, Jews, Music, and the American Dream, a fascinating study of the enormous Jewish contribution to popular music and how and why that developed. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Ben and I recorded this conversation in New York City, in May 2019. Boogie Woogie has a gut-level appeal that grabbed Ben Sidron when he first heard it as a child. Well, I was literally seven years old. I grew up in Racine, Wisconsin, which is a relatively small town. I, there, I didn't know anybody who liked music, certainly not black music, certainly not jazz or its roots. And uh, I came across this collection of 78s that my father had. And on it was a 78 of uh, Pine Top's Boogie. And there was something about it. You know, this music, if it speaks to you, it speaks to you. And something about that just called to me. And I played it over and over and over again. And then I became obsessed. And then we had this uh, little upright piano. And the thing about it was it was facing a wall. And my house was chaos. And so the (laughs) chaos would go on behind me and I would be facing the wall and I would put my comic books on the uh, music stand and just sit there for hours reading the comic books and letting my le- left hand play boogie patterns. And that's how, that's how I learned all these different boogie patterns. I just let my hand play them and I'm reading my Archie comics. Which something. is exactly the way to practice that stuff because it's the only way your hand, mm-hmm. the muscles in your hand really get it. Motor memory. said about the boogie that that we talk about a lot on this show, but I like to emphasize anyway, because I'm an advocate for exposure with mm. children to everything, because you never know what's going to get them. Mm-hmm. And I love that you just went for it. 
you didn't grow up in that era. That wasn't the music of your childhood, but it just came to you. And I find that that most people tell me that. Do you find that as well? You've interviewed so many people yourself, but I'm fascinated with the first thing that hooks people. And it always seems to be like that, that their ears perk up. They don't need context. Mm -hmm. They just love it. Talked about that because I think that's important. I've thought about that. I think for me, I mean, I can't answer uh, generically what makes people fall in love, but it, it is falling in love. And I think the reason uh, for me, it goes back to the heartbeat. You know, the boogie is a dotted eighth feeling, and the heartbeat is a dotted eighth. It's not a straight eighth. And there was something about it that was so warm and so human, and it contrasted, I think, with what I was sensing in in the life around me that was so uh, tense. There was a lot of tension in the house where I grew up that I just uh, went to it like a, a thirsty dog goes to a bowl of water. I mean, that's kind of what it felt like, boogie-woogie to me. And and from that point on, all the music that I would hear and fall in love with had that same quality. I mean, after Boogie Woogie, I got lucky when I was 13, I stumbled into Horace Silver. Mm. I thought Horace Silver was related to me. I actually thought Blue Mitchell, his trumpet player, was talking to me mm. and that these were my relatives. So there's something about the music that uh, kind of took the place of the people who were supposed to raise me, but didn't. You're not the first person who's told me that, mm. which I find profound, that yeah. people have that kind of connection that is so positive and can fill a space because we're all looking for understanding. And I think if you hear these musicians and you think that you're related to them, doesn't matter what race they are, doesn't matter what age they are, you don't feel alone.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with pianist, singer, songwriter, author, Ben Sidron. Jazz particularly has a grammar uh, that's not unlike the grammar of the English language. It's very different from the grammar of the German language, for example, or the Spanish language. Explain what you mean by that. Well, English swings in a particular way. Uh, the way the language works and the way we articulate it, even as I'm speaking to you now, mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm. feel a four in there or, or whatever it is. There's something... There's w- something swinging about it. There's something it. swinging about it. And uh, before uh, you pressed record, you mentioned the name Irving Berlin. I think that Irving Berlin's genius really was understanding intuitively that the English language swung. Mm. And uh, so when he wrote lyrics like Alexander's Ragtime Band, the um, remarkable thing about that is he wrote it when he was a young person. I mean, he was probably in his early 20s. I don't know exactly how old he was. Um, But his first language was Yiddish. So uh, he spoke English as a second language, and yet... He grasped the street aspect of English. He didn't speak the king's English. Mm. He spoke uh, the Lower East Side's English, and he got the swing in the language. And that mm. was his genius. You know, he 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 didn't play ragtime. He wasn't much of a piano player. Ragtime was a code word for blacks, actually, right? Mm-hmm. Alexander's ragtime band. Alexander was a code word. Ragtime was a code word. But he got that the language swung, even mm. if his piano played did swing. So I think that's kind of, there's something in there with jazz and the English language, the grammar, as it was growing up in the 20th century. People were coming out of the Victorian era of the 19th century, uh, merging into this modernism. It was New York, the city, the skyscrapers, this tremendous energy that was going on. And jazz was kind of the subtext. And it existed beneath the politics and beneath the definition Mm. of, of the language. Another thing that I found interesting with jazz and English that gives them something else that's similar is they're both great at absorbing mm-hmm. new things mm-hmm. and being reinvigorated and reinvented mm-hmm. and then coming out with something else, which a lot of languages aren't good at that. That's exactly They right. actually have trouble with it. You see it French, 
is having trouble integrating all these technical terms mm -hmm. and things like that. So that's really fascinating. Well, you bring up Irving Berlin, so let's go right to your book. I just, I love this. It's, I think everyone should read it. I've actually sold a few of these for you, Ben. Thank you. Thank I've you. just, everywhere I go, I'm, I'm having people, I carry it with me and people take a picture of it. There was a fire, Jews, music, and the American dream. So talk about this, what, what, prompted you to write it. I'm just, I'm a big fan of this book. I just love it. Well, okay. So I stumbled into my Judaism in 1992. And the way it happened, well, I actually, it goes back to the 80s. Do you have a minute? Because this is- I do have a minute. No, I, I want to hear it because I, I, I will say before you launch on this, I'm not Jewish. Yeah. But I- related with so much of this because you talk of the other which you'll get to and feeling mm -hmm. like an outsider and all these things which i think are true for practically everyone i know it's hilarious they can be tall and beautiful and have everything going from they go i was such an outcast growing up and you're really you realize everybody feels that way That's so right. continue continue so uh i did my best to avoid uh you know two things one are the organized jews and two uh boxes of CDs in my basement only to wind up with boxes of Jewish CDs in my basement. Right? So, <laughs> what happened was my son, when he was six, I wanted him to have some sense of being Jewish, but I didn't want to join a synagogue because it's all about buildings and material things. I thought that's what my, I mean, I had a bar mitzvah and then after my bar mitzvah, I, I found that Horace Silver was much more meaningful and spiritual than the Jewish text. So I fell into jazz. So anyway, there was this little synagogue in the city where I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and I took my son there, and it was kind of Hamish, which is a word for just down to earth. And there was a woman who was on the Bema, which is the platform, and she was a, a real humanist and a leftist, and I loved it and everything, but she was playing guitar and doing the songs. I hate guitars. <laughs> I hate guitars. Guitars will almost put the piano out of business. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so after the service, I went up to her and I said, gee, it's a lovely service, but would you let me play the music with you? Because I remembered sitting there at these songs from when I was a kid. When I was five or six years old, I went to synagogue with my father and I didn't understand Hebrew, but back then the synagogues were full of refugees from Eastern Europe and you'd go into these rooms and these old Jews would be davening, they'd be swaying, they'd be grooving. And I think that was my first jazz experience, being in a room. It's like you were saying, you hear the intonation contouring of a language you don't understand, and it's jazz. So anyway, she said, sure, of course. And one thing led to another, and I developed this music. And then in 92, uh, I decided I wanted to record it. And what I did was I picked 10 of these songs that are really like, uh, well, the songs are named uh, Hine Matovu, uh, Ose Sholom, Avinu Malkenu. These are almost like children's songs. These are songs you learn when you're very young in temple. And I went around the country and I said to all my Jewish musician friends, the Brecker brothers, uh, Josh Redman, uh, Steve Kahn, I mean, they're like 30. This, this still exists. It's a CD called Life's a Lesson. Carol King sings Life's a Lesson with me. Uh, and I called people up. I said, we're making a Jewish uh, CD of all this music from when we were kids. And they all said the same thing to me. Yeah, I'm a Jew, but I don't care. I'm not Jewish. And I said, yeah, me too. Don't worry. 
I said, you come down to the studio. We're going to do this. If you don't like it, we don't use it. No harm, no foul. And every one of these people came down and played and left with a cassette tape to give to their mother, right? Everybody had the same story that I had, right? We fell in love with with jazz and left the Jewish, but we but we still wanted to know what it was to be a Jew, and mm-hmm. that and so that started me wondering what what it was to be a Jew. Well, that was ninety two. Ten years later. I was asked, I was the artist in residence at the University of Wisconsin, and you have to develop a course. And it popped into my head, this is very odd, you know, the Jews have never been more than 2% of the population in the United States, and yet it seems like they contributed 80% of the popular music business and the songs. What is that? It's not enough to say, oh, look, here's a list of all the Jewish people. So what? What is that? What was it about the Jewish person not just the Jewish tradition, because we can point to a lot of things. Uh, we can point to the fact that uh, the Jewish liturgy from the beginning was sung. I mean, if you didn't sing it, it wasn't from the heart. Uh, and you can point to the fact that in the liturgy, there's music notation above uh, the words in the Torah, even though we don't remember, know anymore what the notation meant. We see it and we copy it. Mm. So music has been a part of it. Not only that, but the entire Jewish a narrative, right, the greatest story ever told, was originally a song, a magic song. It wasn't written down for 500 years, even though there was writing. They didn't want to write it down. So the music is a very powerful trope in the Jewish experience. But there's something else, too, and that is the people who did this were not the rich, assimilated Jews from Germany who came in the 1840s. They were the broke-down, dirt poor shtetl Jews who came in the 1880s to the United States who had nothing and had been living in ghettos uh, in the Pale of Settlement in Mm. Russia for generations. And these are the people who invented American popular music. And so what was that? That's what really interested me. How, who were these people? And I, of course, I came to the, the, understanding that it wasn't just that they were looking for America. America was looking for somebody like them mm. to come up with an articulation of, of, the they, American of the American experience. Life's a lesson You can fail it You can set your spirit free or jail it But setting it free is no guarantee it's gonna fly when you say that the object is to write it, but setting it free while you're sitting astride it isn't easy. You can learn a lot by going crazy. You can fail it. You can set your spirit free or jail it. But setting it free is no guarantee it's gonna fly when you sail it. And if you feel like you're in prison. No one is coming to talk or to listen Take it easy Know that no one ever has it easy No one ever learns to fly by freezing Life's a lesson you can pass or fail Yeah Life's a lesson from my guest Ben Sidron's CD of the same name I'm Judy Carmichael And this is Jazz Inspired. 
I got involved in the Jewish music business. I went around and was playing at you know Jewish events and everything. And uh, when I was asked to be the artist in residence, and you can develop any kind of a course, it struck me that maybe I could look into what was it about these Jews that led to this. Uh, I've always wondered myself because yeah. anybody who's paying attention knows that there's all these Jewish composers, and you think, mm. what is this about? And what I loved, uh, the many things that I love with the book, I'm gushing now, was how you continued throughout the book to talk about the development of America and how that was affecting the music and how the music was affecting, how it all worked together, how mm. these people would only exist in this time. As you just said, America was waiting mm -hmm. for someone to articulate that experience. And one of the people who articulated it in a huge way, of course, is Irving Berlin. Mm -hmm. And I loved you talking about him. Talk about just who he was and his growth and how he became who he was and how he utilized his skills in such an interesting way, too, because he wasn't Gershwin, very different very experience. Different. Very different. Very different experience. Talk about it. He uh, was born in Siberia, we think. His birthplace is still uh, up for grabs. But he came to the United States at six. His only memory of pre-America was watching his house burn. With the, you know, the Cossacks had burned it down. He came. Uh, he uh, washed up on the Lower East Side, as, as all the immigrants did at the time. His father uh, and mother and uh, siblings uh, lived in the little one-room apartment down the Lower East Side. And uh, his father passed away when he was 13. He sang in the, in the synagogue with his father. Initially, when his father died, he felt he was a burden on the family, and he left home. He left home as a, as a boy, and he wound up... Uh, singing on street corners uh he because he sang in in the in the synagogue choir he was he had some singing ability and what he would do is um that's but it was before radio and so popular songs and now we're talking about 1910 1915 popular songs were spread by people singing them on street corners and what the artifact was was sheet music see this is so interesting about timing I mean, Irving Berlin uh, eventually became uh, a songwriter because he could get paid by selling sheet music. That's how people got paid. Well, the reason sheet music became a business was because in the late 19th century, pianos became the first item that people could buy on credit. And all the, so, the wannabe middle-class homes in America got pianos, first of all, and then the daughters learned how to play so they could entertain their suitors, because that's what you did. And subsequently, sheet music was the business. So Irving Berlin was uh, somebody singing on street corners. Eventually, he got a job in a bar as a singing waiter, and there was a black piano player in the bar, and together they wrote a, a few songs. And, uh, of course, his big hit was Alexander's Ragtime Band, which was a hit unlike anything that had happened before. That song went around the world. It was the equivalent of, uh, I don't know, I guess today it would be Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars. Was, <laughs> you know, a, a, a billion downloads, okay? Uh, something that huge in, in its day. Well, and I think something to give people an idea of what this means is just really for a moment thinking about the fact that there was no internet, there was no way no, to nothing. spread this, and it still became 
a huge hit. Right. So that tells you a lot about uh, the perspicacity of him as a writer and the ear because he didn't read music. And not only that, but he could only play piano in G flat. I mean, he could only play in the black keys. Right, right. Uh, and he still managed to do all this and come up with all these incredible melodies. And uh, Incredible. And the way he did it is he would work with uh, an assistant and he would call out harmonies to these people. He didn't know theory, but he'd say, no, that's not right. No, that's not. Yes, that's right. So he was also, he was doing the, the harmonic underpinning as well. He wasn't just writing the melodies. Absolutely. He, had he did the whole view. thing. Yeah. He was of the generation where he wrote the lyrics and the music mm. and wrote uh, songs uh, on demand. I mean, if there was something in the news about, uh, let's say, the Spanish uh, War, he'd write a song about the Spanish War. He, when asked, you know... Uh, what does being a Jew have to do with your success, said something that Jewish songwriters said throughout the 20th century. He said, nothing. I'm an American writer. Being a Jew has nothing to do with it. And I saw that so many times in my researching the book that I came to, to think that that's the most Jewish thing you can say, <laughs> is that being a Jew has nothing to do with it. That's very Jewish. Oh, oh that is fascinating. How much do I love you? I'll tell you no lie. How deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? How many times a day do I think of you? How many roses are sprinkled with dew? How far would I travel? To be where you are How far is the journey From here to a star And if I ever lost you How much would I cry How deep is the ocean How high is the sky Billy Holiday on the Irving Berman composition How Deep is the Ocean? journey 
from here to a star And if I ever lost you How much would I cry How deep is the ocean How much would I cry How high is the sky I'm Judy Carmichael and this is Jazz Inspired I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway & Sons. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on all the usual podcast platforms and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stride Queen. Although we broadcast on NPR stations, we're an independent production not funded by NPR. We're funded primarily by your donations, so please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in. No gift is too small. And please tell your friends about Jazz Inspired and help us spread the word. My guest is singer-songwriter Ben Sidron. Here's Ben on Private Guy from his CD, Don't Cry for No Hipster. When nobody's looking That's when I'm cooking When nobody's waiting I'm elevating When nobody's caring I'm soul bearing When nobody's pushing I got me a cushion Yeah, I tried and I tried But I realized I'm just a private guy I'm just a private kind of guy Nobody's knocking I'm steady rocking When nobody's calling I'm steady balling When nobody's asking That's when I'm multitasking When they're handing out prizes 
That's when I'm wearing disguises. Yeah, I tried and I tried, but I realize I'm just a private. I try to hide, but I realize I'm just a private guy. Just a private kind of guy. Guitar. Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with Ben Sidron about his book, There Was a Fire, Jews, Music, and the American Dream. It fascinates me, you saying, being Jewish has nothing to do with my songwriting mm-hmm. or my what I'm doing, what I'm putting out. It's interesting on a number of levels, because... I just had a conversation last night at dinner with a number of people. I went to a state college in California, and they all went to fancy Ivy League schools. All fabulous, conscious people. And they were interested. They were talking about what one gets from that. And what they acknowledged was what you got was obviously a great education and a certain access because there were lots of people who were impressed that you went to Harvard or Vassar, one of these. But what none of them thought, and what I brought up, and they were fascinated and they didn't disagree, was the access they have from day one. And that's what I'm thinking about saying, my being Jewish has nothing to do with any of this. They didn't even realize. I don't even know anyone from elementary school. I don't know people. I don't know anyone that I went to college with. But they will know people from the beginning because there was a certain a, a certain winnowing of who's going to go to those schools. And so that right there meant that a lot of those people were going to go on to be Broadway producers. But I know from my, from my group of friends that are like that, they go, oh, I went to school with so-and-so. I'll, let me give him a call. And I'm thinking, I've had to work. And I don't say it as negative. 
I think there's positive things in both ways. Well, but that's exactly what happened uh, with the Jewish experience. You know, these people were not allowed into Harvard and they were not allowed into the white shoe law firms. And so being a Jew had everything to do with them becoming songwriters. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying there are advantages, but they don't even know. No. It's like somebody saying, well, my experience is, is just like yours. Why are you whining about it? They don't realize that their entire life, that is the experience that right. they've and had. And nobody can understand the longing for belonging, like somebody standing outside the window Absolutely. looking in. It becomes part of their fiber. But one of the things that you talked about in the book was how common that longing is yeah. for for so many people because there were so many immigrants because America was inventing itself. I love that you talked about the desire to invent yourself. I remember that when I was a kid. We were brought up with you can do anything, whether that was true or not. But it was a great motivator for me that I would that you can get out there and do something original, do it. And that's what jazz epitomizes, of course. Right. And the other thing that jazz has always epitomized, uh, except today, I don't know if it's still the case, was there was some connection to social justice. I always felt that in the music. And when I talked to musicians, I always felt that from musicians, that deep love, that sense of community, the sense that you're going to make the world a better place by swinging, by feeling, by putting something positive in the room. And so when I wrote the book, you know, the first thing I had to go back and try to understand is who is a Jew? What is a Jew? Because it's not a religion. I mean, I don't believe in God, but I feel Jewish. And that's a very Jewish point of view. And matter of fact, the Jews, where as opposed to many religions where uh, the religion provides answers, uh, the Jewish so-called religion, I say so-called because it's more of a cultural thing, provides questions. And it, it, it really leads you to question, even to the point where, you know, uh, the great prophets are arguing with God. They're arguing, how could you do this? So the question, who is a Jew? And it's, 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 it's problematic. Just like what is Jewish music? I, the joke is there are no Jewish notes on the piano. There's 88 keys, we all have the same. But it, it dawned on me that if you can convert to Judaism, and you can, then by definition, everybody must have an inner Jew, whatever that means. Some sense of wanting to belong to a community, some sense of uh, understanding social justice, that why that's important. You know, if one person is not free, nobody is free. That's mm. that sense that this is uh, who we are. Uh, we are... It, you know, individually, we're single notes. Together, we're a symphony, that sort of thing. Mm. And uh, so this idea of America looking for the Jews, just as the Jews were looking for America, I mean, America was, and still is, God bless it, a country of immigrants. You know, in, in 1952, there was the House Un-American Activities Committee, you know, these communist hunters. There's, it's a crazy concept. There's no such thing as being un-French. How would you say un-French? What, you're not eating baguettes? There's no sense of it, right? <laughs> There's no un-British. But in America, a bunch of crazy people can say you're not American. You know what I mean? It's, we're still in, in, in formation. So here come the Jews. They're outsiders. They've got to invent themselves. They're, they're uh, living literally on the rim of the well. I mean, the difference between self-employment and unemployment is how you wake up in the morning. It's, there's no, and it becomes a living metaphor for the American experience. So 
It is very Jewish in many ways, the American experience. And the fact that there is anti-Semitism just points out how difficult the human condition is. I mean, that's all it is. It's almost existential. Because an anti-Semite, first of all, hates him or herself more than anybody. And there it is. Face your fears You've got nothing to lose But your years Face your fears You've got nothing to shed But your tears You're not old You're not young You're just here So face your fears And as the silence of night Draws near Face your fear Cause like a beacon of light It's clear Gershwin, because I know a fair amount about sure these individuals. Well, about these individuals, but but you brought so many things together, which was really nice. So talk about George Gershwin and his experience, which was very different. Very different than Irving Berlin. So talk about George. Well, Gershwin was second generation American. He was born in America, and. Uh, Although his family moved every six months, as a lot of Jewish families did, because, you know, if you moved, you got a new paint job in the apartment or something. I don't know what the deal was, but they're always moving all over New York. And uh, there was a piano in his, in his house, and he was obviously uh, gifted. He was a genius at the piano. And as a young man, he became uh, so proficient that he left school and he got a job uh, demonstrating sheet music. He would sit in a music store and just play and play and play. People would hear them, hear, hear him then. And um, at the time, um, the music business was not what it is today. If you were Jewish in New York, a big part of your potential employment was the Yiddish theater. The Yiddish theater was an enormous operation. And as a matter of fact, it's the foundation of what became Broadway. And not just that the Jews did the compositions and wrote the narratives, but they they made up the bulk of the audience because there was a, a big Jewish tradition of going to musical theater that came out of Russia and everything. So uh, Gershwin's dream from the beginning was to write what he called the great American opera. That that was the goal. But at the same time, he was in love with the Harlem piano players and he would go and hang with James P. Johnson and he would, and they all dug this little white boy who came and could play that, that stuff. So unlike Berlin and, and so many of the other Jewish composers, he was a player. He was a piano player first and he loved playing. So his music came from his connection to the blues, really, the roots of the blues, his connection to the narrative, the big story, like an opera has an overarching narrative. And so Gershwin would say, 
whether he's writing a commercial song or whether he's writing an opera, they're both equally difficult because they're about narrative. He's a storyteller. He's very conscious of, of that. But mainly, what, what his, I think, what his real contribution was, unlike uh, Berlin, uh, who didn't really understand black culture, Gershwin understood it. And so when he wrote Porgy and Bess, for example, a lot of those songs had their roots in a Yiddish experience. And in fact, uh, Summertime was originally a, a sketch for a song that he was going to put in uh, a Yiddish. He, he, <laughs> this is so funny. So he's starting out and Yiddish theater was like a big business. And he tried to get into Yiddish theater and he auditioned and he wasn't Jewish enough. And they <laughs> said, you're not Jewish enough which saved his life for, for, for his whole life. Every time he ran into the Yiddish theater people, he was so grateful he didn't That he it. didn't make it. That he didn't make it. <laughs> There's a joke, you know, breaking into Yiddish theater is like breaking into prison. Once you're there, you can't get out. <laughs> so uh, uh. The, uh, the fact is he was going to do a Yiddish opera called the Dybbuk. The Dybbuk is like a spirit who haunts the world. It goes back to Russia. And in the end, he couldn't get the rights to it. He didn't do it. But he used some of that music uh, in Porgy and Bess. So what the connection he made, consciously or not, was direct and profound. And it came through jazz players.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with Ben Sidron about his book, There Was a Fire, Jews, Music, and the American Dream. Something that you said that's significant to me and to all jazz musicians is you talked about Gershwin always telling a narrative. And you know how the old guys, when we were coming up, would always say, tell a story, tell a story. And we know what that means. But I think a lot of our audience, if they're not musicians, especially if they're not jazz musicians, because we're making up our chorus or choruses. Mm -hmm. And the greatest improvisers were all trying to tell a story, not just have a series of of loosely connected licks Mm -hmm. or phrases. And that really had meaning for me when you talked about Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg and that whole working together when the lyrics come mm-hmm. and writing it after the composer has written the music and what that means if they're a strong composer and they are they have a story so that you're writing the lyrics to that great harmonic structure where that's going. Talk a bit about that. And I loved what Ira said about being a lyricist. Talk about that. It was so beautiful, so wonderful. So I've now asked you a bunch of a things. Bunch but, of those were, but, they, but those they're, were, they're, they're all related and it all had deep meaning for me. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Ira Gershwin, uh, it's a joke really, asked what comes first, the words or the music? And Ira said the phone call. You know, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the fact that this is a business and you do take it seriously. And maybe if you spend years and years and years, finally one day you'll write a song. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about this the other night. Uh, I, I mentioned to you, I... I was playing at, at a club here in New York and the singer Hillary Gardner came down and she sang one of my songs. And uh, I heard my song from the outside as opposed to the inside. I've always heard it inside my head. And I realized listening to her sing it, the difference between a lyric and poetry. Poetry is really written for your eyes and a lyric is written for your voice. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why so often, and I would say the majority of the great American songbook was written music first. The lyrics followed the music. It's almost as if the music speaks through the lyricist, right? It's not like the lyricist fits words the way a jeweler would put a, a, a gem into a setting, but the music becomes absorbed through the person and speaks and comes out. Mm. As we were saying, it's a grammar. There's a grammar. To, yes, to and if you've got about. a great composer that's telling a story with with the music right. and understands harmony and where that's going and and where this where it's swelling and when it's going minor when it's doing all these right. things, you hear the story and the lyricist actualizes that. Actualizes it. Yeah. And, and translates it almost. Translates it, yeah. So with Arland and Harburg, you know, they wrote wonderful songs together, but the uh, crown jewel, of course, is Over the Rainbow. And it's very easy to see from the first two notes the magic of what's going on. It's an octave leap, right? Somewhere, right? But how did that word somewhere get fit into that octave leap? That's very interesting because... Yip Harburg, the lyricist, struggled for days with that first two notes. You know, it could it could have been anything until he hit on somewhere. Well, the word somewhere 
captures a whole universe and a realm and a possibility and a future. And the octave leap is such a positive thing. It's like jumping off a cliff for a vocalist. Just in that little bit, you can tell a lot about who these two guys were and how they worked. chimney tops that's where you Judy Garland on the Yip Harburg, Harold Arlen composition, Over the Rainbow. You've been listening to the first half of my conversation with Ben Sidron. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another celebrated creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidoff. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on all the usual podcast platforms or at jazzinspired.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one, from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway & Sons. Additional support is provided by Page at 63 Main in Sag Harbor, New York, serving organic microgreens and vegetables grown on their own energy-efficient indoor and outdoor aquaponic farms. Better taste, happier planet. Visit Page at 63 Main at opentable.com. 
For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stride Queen. For more information, visit judycarmichael.com or jazzinspired.com. 